You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. And I have my wonderful co-host, Dr. Carrie Bedient from Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hi. And Dr. Abby Evelyn from Nashville Fertility Center. Hey, everybody. And we have a special guest today from Ovation Fertility, Dr. Tex Vermillier. I always mess up your last name. I'm so sorry. That's all right. No, you got it. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Good, good. So what were you doing before you came to hang out with us, Tex? Well, I was on the tractor. um, Wait, do you have your own tractor? I've got a couple, yeah. (laughs) You have more than one tractor? Are there multiple types of tractors? There are. There's, you know, you can have a, a lawnmower riding tractor, or you can have a excavator, or you could have a skid steer, and all three of which I have. So, yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> what are you planting? Well, I was just doing the yard. Um, I've got an excavator that I just kind of, you know, dig holes. <laughs> Do you dig it for any particular reason, or, or just for the it's, hell of it? It's, it's relaxing. <laughs> yeah, I've got a, a, a bit of a pond um, kind of in the on, on the property. So, yeah, maybe digging out tree stumps from trees that may have fallen. I bet your friends are a little nervous when they walk around your property. They want to make sure they have flashlights with them. They don't know if they'll fall in a hole somewhere. <laughs> this is true. This is true. I try to mark them, but I usually just dig them and, and fill them back in. So it's, it's pretty, um, it's relaxing. It's good. It's good to get out and play in the dirt. I'm hearing a saying about the difference between men and boys is the cost of their toys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is what happens. The little Tonka trucks are cheaper. That's right. <laughs> So do you do any kind of farming or you... Not necessarily, no. Um, You know, we've just got a decent-sized property lot. And so, yeah, got some small equipment implements to um, kind of mess around with. So, yeah. That sounds like so much fun. It is fun. It does. When I was a kid and because I grew up in the city and I've lived in cities all my life. We would have never guessed that by the, you have a tractor. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know that you could be a normal person and own a tractor because like my backyard right now is approximately the size of a postage stamp. And so I was thinking about like, can I justify getting a tractor? And I'm like, no, I have maybe eight feet by eight feet of fake green lawn in my backyard because Vegas is there turf everywhere. And I'm like, no, I don't think I can justify the tractor. The excavator, that intrigues me, but I still don't have enough space to do anything with it. And so like whatever I was a kid and we would take road trips and I would see people out on their tractors. I'm like, wow, how do you get a tractor? How do you know how to drive? Do you have to go to driving school for tractors? Maybe some of the bigger ones. I just kind of watched some YouTube videos and sort of figured out. And... <laughs> just like everything else nowadays. You just watch a YouTube video. Did you watch YouTube videos like when you learned how to do ICSI or any of that kind of stuff? Or was that like actual schooling? No, I mean, yeah, no, that's kind of actual schooling. Um, okay, good. There's a lot on there nowadays. But uh, yeah, I mean, I kind of learned all those skills you know, prior to YouTube even getting as big as it is. But it can be a, a good resource, I think. Certainly how to drive tractors. That is correct. (laughs) (laughs) But let's do a couple of questions real quick. 
Um, our first question is, I want to thank you for making me and so many others not feel alone in this infertility journey. I am 37, heavy 36, and we've been trying for a year. Semen analysis was normal. My blood labs looked normal, according to the doc. AMH 6.6, FSH 4.5, TSH 1.4. They had an HSG out in November, and it turns out the left tube was blocked and no spilling. And the right side looked normal. We have been timing sex and altered her diet and monitoring basal body temperatures, positive ovulation tests every month in regular periods. Not sure where to go from here. And every month I'm heartbroken to see my period. Do you have any advice or should I look into IUI? Thanks all. So it sounds like she's been doing all the right things to optimize natural fertility, timing intercourse, you know, making sure that there's adequate numbers of sperm, all those things. It sounds like the two big things that come up on this one is, is that tube is blocked, which we've talked about this a bunch of times. If the one tube's blocked, the other one has a much higher chance of being compromised. So if you think you might be pregnant at all, make sure you pee on a stick and get checked early. Because we're worried about ectopic pregnancy. We want your safety above everything else. Yeah. Um, and so tubal issue is one thing. There's always the underlying issue of age. Now your AMH at six is phenomenal. And so yeah. I'm glad for you for that. Um, but that doesn't mean that the eggs are good quality. It just means that there's probably a higher number of them. So there's more to sort through, but there's a better chance that at least one of those guys is good because there's more of them. And so, you know, if you've been at this for a while, I would say, yeah, it's time to start getting aggressive because if you do a couple of IUIs and they work, phenomenal. If they don't, you want to be able to move on to the next step and keep making forward progress because you don't really want to get to 38 or 39 without having met your goal because then age really and truly does become an impact. Yeah, and I would just add in too, and I know we've talked about this before as well, but if that left tube's blocked, it's not going to be real easy to get pregnant on that side. And so if you ovulate every other month on every other side, you know, if you've tried for 12 months, you've probably only had, you know, maybe six times to really try and get pregnant. And so, you know, with the age factor kind of against you, at minimum, it would be helpful if somebody could look with ultrasound each month and figure out which side you're ovulating on. And, you know, maybe in some of the months where you're ovulating on the right side, maybe you might want to think about being more aggressive and doing IUI or something like that. Or based on your age alone and the time that you've been trying, it may be time to move on to something even more aggressive than that. So one thing I want to make sure that our listeners understand, though, is that your ovaries do not take turns. Like it is a flip of a coin if you ovulate on the right versus the left. It doesn't know what happened last month. Okay. <laughs> because I have patients ask me that all the time. They're like, oh, so if I ovulate on my right this month, next month, it's going to be the left. And it's like, no, it's a 50-50 flip. So, <laughs> Well, and it can work to your advantage or your disadvantage, depending on which side you ovulate on. So that could be helpful or not helpful. So it'd be helpful to look with ultrasound, at least know what's going on each month. Yeah. And the opposite tube can pick up the other side's egg. It's just, it's less likely to happen. Yeah. All right. Let's do one more. I love your podcast. Amazing. I am 33, husband 37. We've been trying, but ultimately went in for an infertility evaluation. Labs were normal. AMH 3.16. Semen analysis, normal. Discovered they had a uterine septum and had it removed. Follow-up after the surgery has shown recurrent scar tissue growth in my uterus. I was diagnosed with Asherman syndrome. I have now had three hysteroscopies with scar tissue revision and am seemingly needing one every two months. We have tried leaving in balloons in my uterus for seven days and high dose estrogen for 28 days. I am wondering if there's anything that can be done other than just continuing to remove the scar tissue. Can anything even implant with the scar tissue? Thank you so much. 
Boy, that's a tough one. That's a very unusual situation. Yeah, I was just about to say that's unusual for a septum repair to end up with a lot of scar tissue. And typically what you've done, I use balloons and typically that's really helpful. I mean, rarely does anybody get scar tissue when a balloon's placed in. What I thought the listener was going to say is that she went to somebody else and somebody else said, oh, the septum's still there. Um, because sometimes, you know, even when you take a septum out, the endometrium never looks perfect, you know, and in, in, in the way it would if you'd never had a septum to start off with. I don't know. That's a tough one. I think, you know, generally when I've seen people that have had usually like a lot of retained tissue for a long period of time, sometimes it takes more than one surgery to go back and kind of open up the, the uterus. But usually I've had pretty good success with high dose estrogen and tincture of time. And, you know, usually I don't go back more than once or twice, even in that situation. So it's a little bit unusual that you keep having to go back for multiple surgeries. What would you say, Carrie? So I remember we had one patient when I was in training where we took her back, I would say four times and she had had a myomectomy. So fibroids taken out of the uterus. And um, they had gotten into the cavity because she had a ton of fibroids. And so she had Asherman syndrome from that. And it took about four hysteroscopies to get her lining in a good place. And ultimately, she had a baby and it was just fine. But it was a lot of work. And it was the estrogen and it was the balloons and all of that. There's a difference between complete obliteration of the lining versus just a local specific obliteration, meaning... A septum is kind of a line straight, it's a wall straight through the uterus. And so you would expect that the only scar tissue that would form would come from where that wall forms on the top and on the bottom, not on 100% of the surface. And so um, I would think that would be a little bit easier to fix, but you never know how someone's uterus is going to react. So, yeah. So I'm not a big fan of balloons. I've used balloons in the past. I actually had to defend that on my um, board exam. And that's actually what got me off of using balloons because really the data doesn't support for or against it. And a lot of people don't tolerate the balloons very well, but I'm a big fan of kind of cycling people with estrogen and perhaps not just doing the one cycle of estrogen and then letting you go on to what your normal thing is, but doing two or three months of the type of preparation we do for embryo transfers where we are like truly like getting that nice plush lining and then we're clean in house and then we're going to, you know, get another nice plush lining and clean house again. Maybe that might be something to help kind of protect the lining and then get an embryo in there as soon as possible. Yeah. And one thing I would say, too, is, you know, she didn't mention if she was having periods or not. Yeah. I think some people don't understand, like Carrie said, it's shades of gray. I mean, maybe there's a little bit of stuff in there, but, you know, it's different than if your whole cavity is scarred and obliterated. So if you're having periods every month, that's great because that tells me that a lot of your endometrium is normal and it may just be in small isolated areas. And maybe that scar tissue is not clinically significant. I mean, sometimes when you've had scar tissue, again, you can't put Humpty Dumpty back together perfectly. And sometimes you can't get rid of every bit of scar tissue. But if you're having regular periods and your lining's building up, that's a good sign that probably you're going to you know, be able to carry a pregnancy and have an implantation. Mm -hmm. Very good. Well, let's kind of turn our attention to Tex. So Tex is the Vice President of Scientific Advancement. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. For Ovation Fertility. And we are going to talk about the things that are available or coming in regards to AI. It's such a cool topic. Which is artificial intelligence, right? That is correct. 
Yeah, AI is basically anything and everything that can be done, you know, by computers that may have been done by humans. Um, and so, you know, our field in IVF and fertility is really putting a lot of attention towards this technology. So deep learning is a common term. Machine learning; these are all kind of subsets of the overarching umbrella of artificial intelligence. But it's basically things that a computer can do better than a human can. And we're seeing a lot of uh, branching of this uh, technology in the field, whereby we're using it to better select embryos, identify embryos that are more likely to become viable pregnancies and lead to successful pregnancies. So what do we use currently to identify embryos and how does AI play into that? Like what makes them better? So for years and years, you know, we use uh, standard morphology. So we look down the microscope. I'm using my human eyes, of course, to assess embryos and look at morphology. Morphology is the description of the embryo. What does it look like? How many cells does it have? How thick is the zona pellucida, which is that outer shell of the embryo? You know, is there any cellular granularity or do the cells, you know, look like they're deteriorating or do they look nice and healthy? So I'm making those assessments down the microscope, and it's very subjective. I can look down the microscope and look at one particular embryo, and I can call one of my colleagues over and look at the embryo, and we sign those embryos' grades based on how they look. But my colleague may have a different opinion. Um, I may call something a 4AA, and they may call it a 4BB. So AI is really going to allow us to make you know more objective assessments. Um, therefore, the algorithm looks at that embryo potentially, and we're going to have a standard grade that we can use internally as well as externally, that this computer algorithm is basically looking at the morphology and the textures of the embryos and making a better decision based on which embryos are more likely to be the best ones. Is it more of a snapshot or is it something that we look at over time? Yeah, great question as well. So there's different sort of platforms. Some of them use time-lapse technology. So time-lapse is you know taking a picture every five minutes of the embryo growing. So there's a little camera underneath the dish and time-lapse sort of puts all these pictures together and makes a movie so you can actually watch embryos grow and divide. But there's also technologies whereby you literally take a snapshot of the embryo on day five. So a static 2D image. Um, and then you load that image into a platform whereby the assessment occurs. Now, you know, with AI, it all depends on the data set. You know, quality, good AI depends on a very diverse, good data set. So you train the algorithm. So you show the algorithm a whole bunch of pictures of embryos that did lead to successful pregnancies, as well as a whole bunch of pictures of embryos that did not lead to successful pregnancies. And so the AI actually learns which embryos have those common features, which are you know more likely to be positive. So Tex, how prevalent is AI in the lab for our listeners? Is this something that a lot of labs use or is this something that's going to happen in 10 years or kind of what's the timetable for all this? It's quite a novel technology. Um, it's really sort of kicked off probably in the last, you know, four or five years whereby it's becoming more understood. You know, there's not yet been any FDA approval, um, unfortunately, for any of these to be used in the laboratory per se. But globally, outside of the United States, you know, this kind of technology is being routinely used and helping labs uh, across the world, you know, make better decisions. And, you know, going back to just quickly, the ability of the algorithm to identify things that we cannot see with the human eye, that's really the importance of a lot of this. Say at our lab in San Antonio, we have one of these gizmos, Mm -hmm. (laughs) whatever the gizmo actually ends up being. And, you know, it comes in with a data set of these 
thousands, I'm assuming. Yeah, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, yeah. Tens of thousands of, you know, embryos from history and stuff. Is the intent that that data set is going to grow and evolve the ability? I mean, I watch a lot of science fiction movies. So this is like where I'm totally going like, like, is it going to get better with time or are you going to have to buy a new kit? Yeah, absolutely. So the algorithm can basically continue to learn and develop as you're feeding new data into it. So you do need to sometimes kind of lock down the algorithm as is, but as you continue to feed data into the system, it continues to refine, you know, with the idea of giving better assessments, you know, in the long run. So yeah, it kind of package deal whereby it's already set and locked down based on thousands and thousands and thousands of photos from different laboratories, different culture environments. Et cetera, et cetera. Very diverse data set. And then as you continue to use it and upload photos into the system, you know, it will continue to, to build upon and, and refine itself, really. Is there anything with the AI technology right now that has an actionable item associated with it that will improve outcomes? And so what I mean by that is that a lot of what we have seen so far has been helping know which embryo is the best embryo. And so I kind of think about this like PGT, where if someone has done PGT, you know, which embryos are bad and to avoid, but with the rest of the embryos, it's just like, okay, well, we're going to transfer them all, whether or not you've done PGT. And there's going to be some, PGT will help you get there faster because it's going to help you tell which ones do we transfer faster. But the ultimate outcome is not necessarily the same might be an easier path, but whether you get a baby or not is going to be the same. Is there anything in this technology right now that influences how y'all do culture or what you would do? Like if you see something on day three, would that say, hey, we should do XYZ instead for the next two days instead of our standard protocol? Like, are there any other actionable items to help get more embryos or better embryos rather than just helping refine selection of which one do we transfer first? Yeah, great question. So I, I think that, you know, the technology, I think will start allowing us to make changes kind of on the go based on, you know, some preemptive decisions being made. But, you know, let me let me back up and say that, you know, we can also use AI for sperm selection. So before we even identify, you know, sperm to inject into an egg, if we're doing ICSI, um, there are technologies whereby the algorithm identifies morphological features for the sperm and help us better identify which sperm is more likely to be chromosomally normal. Therefore, you know, hopefully we'll provide better fertilization and subsequent embryo development. What we're also doing is working with uh, a few companies that helps with stimulation, identifying which stimulation protocols are more specific for patients. And so as physicians, you know, you guys put together a, a plan for stimulation and drug regime to super ovulate, you know, those ovaries and follicles. But you know, we can use that information based on uh, patient demographics to customize and fine tune that stimulation protocol that will give us a better recipe based on that patient demographics and what they have going on, you know, fertility wise to hopefully make a better uh, product and identify better eggs for, you know, egg retrieval. So text kind of the assumption is that everybody has the same target egg or the same quality of the sales. You know, we talked to somebody that was a geneticist from Stanford, and, and he was looking at big data to look at health and wellness and all that. And what they really showed was that you are a better control for how you're going to do or for your blood pressure, say, than somebody else in the, the massive population. So with that in mind, how is that going to affect AI with embryos? Yeah, so that's a good question. Um 
you know, I think the ability to look at the source and, you know, you also mentioned PGTA, right? So finding those embryos that are more likely to be chromosomally normal. If we're able to layer artificial intelligence on top of that by better identifying which embryos are morphologically more likely to lead to a pregnancy, in addition to identifying through PGT, which ones are euploid, you know, we're going to get those embryos you know, back into the uterus faster, hopefully, right? And by minimizing, um, you know, multiple transfers. But the customization part of treating each patient as an individual, so to speak, and getting some key data inputs prior to going down the road of stimulation or, or, or going down the road of IVF, that's going to help us better refine what that output product is going to be, that, um, you know, embryo or, or the sperm, so to speak. Did that answer your question? Or? Yeah, so like, so you're kind of saying the history of the patient may have some impact on which embryo that you you would select basically. Yeah. And that AI would take in that data, take in that information early on and help us better select which embryo, you know, based on conditions of that particular patient, patient age. These huge data sets are just, you know, a little bit overwhelming because there's so much data there. But yeah. um, being able to tease out what that information or those key elements of it um, to help better make decisions. That's kind of the long-term goal. There have been some gizmos, my word for the day, gizmos <laughs> that have been around in our field before where it's like, oh, if we have this and this and this piece of information, then we think you need to do blank. And for the most part, at least the ones that proclaimed, not necessarily that about how many eggs you're going to have, but ones that seem to try to get things really specific kind of have come and gone. And I'm assuming that's because either they were too expensive to be like reasonable for clinics to adopt, or they just really didn't work. What's your comment on what's happened before in our industry? Because this isn't the first time this type of thing has come up, but like something that that's actually tangible and that's something clinics, not just the gigantic clinics, but clinics that are in Miss USA backyard can go to? Yeah, great questions. I think we've learned a lot from sort of going to market on some failed technologies. You know, with AI, the real meat around it is the data. And so there's going to be some AI that flops because the data set is just not large enough and it's not diverse enough. But I'm quite confident, especially with our collaborations through Ovation Fertility, that we have really honed in on some fantastic companies that have huge data sets. And, you know, I was skeptical to start off. And now I'm a, a true believer. You know, we see AI in healthcare and other fields, and it works great. Um, and it really helps, you know, let's say radiology. You know, that's a lot of that is AI driven, um, helping identify things that we cannot see from putting a x-ray up against the light, right? So I think we're still cautious, but I think the endpoint is really going to help hopefully drive the cost down of you know IVF and lab work just in general. That was my next question. What does this mean for our patients? I mean, yeah. you know, they hear AI and they're like, I'm already paying so much. These machines are really expensive. They can be, but you know, a lot of this AI is all cloud-based. So you know, we don't need the time lapse, you know, we don't need the expensive incubators. All we need to do is literally take a picture of an embryo, which we're already doing. Um, we usually take pictures prior to freezing embryos on day five, sometimes, you know. Take what you have and getting more information out of it. Absolutely. And the only other step is just grabbing those photos and sticking them, you know, in the cloud through the algorithm and, and running it, you know, web-based. So I wouldn't expect for that technology or the implementation of that technology to increase costs. But we're also looking at a lot of novel AI work with non-invasive genetic analysis. And again, you know, interestingly, we published an abstract and a large conference a couple of years ago that, you know, a trisomy 21 embryo 
on day five. So an embryo that will have Down syndrome, a trisomy 21, three copies of chromosome 21 embryo on day five actually looks different huh. than a normal embryo on day five. And that was been able to be picked up using artificial intelligence. That's impressive. So imagine the capabilities of not having to go and have an embryo biopsy, be able to identify ploidy status just by photos of embryos. And even sex, you know, identifying sex of an embryo on day five, you know, whether it's going to be male or female. It would be neat if this could help us out with mosaic embryos, like helping us figure out which mosaic embryos are actually going to result in a normal baby, which ones are just going to result in miscarriage. Like I can say when I first found out that we were all going to have to like talk about mosaicism, I was I was not really excited at that moment, <laughs> mm-hmm. but it's something that I, I've actually kind of embraced. And I'm more than happy to talk to my patients about nowadays and that type of thing. But if this would be something to help us know which way that embryo is likely to turn. Absolutely. And we're working on just that. You know, what additional tool can we have in our toolbox to help us, you know, remove some of that gray space and try to make it a little bit more black and white? Absolutely. And I think AI is a perfect example of what kind of technology we can go through or use you know, non-invasively, because we already have the diagnosis of the embryo based on a genetic analysis um, where we've done an embryo biopsy. But can we find something more by the morphology of that embryo and the AI teasing out key features that may put that embryo more to the left or more to the right? So somebody could argue that, well, if I only have one embryo to transfer or maybe only two, how is this really going to make a difference? But kind of what you may be saying in a roundabout way is maybe... Maybe even if we knew it was a genetically normal embryo, maybe there's some circumstance in which we would find out that even a genetically normal embryo may not implant. Absolutely. Very much so. So what do we do first whenever we do embryo biopsies? We end up taking the embryo biopsy, identifying which embryos are euploid. And then if you've got five embryos that are euploid out of a cohort of 10, you know, your secondary selection is morphology based on how that embryo was graded by an embryologist. So if we can layer or remove that piece and plug in AI to help us better identify which embryo based on morphology, um, you know, it could be a very, very much a win-win situation. It'd be neat if we could have something that even would help us. I'm just like thinking of all the things I wish I could have in the future. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like I would like something that I have like this embryo that looks fantastic. And how do I take this embryo? And with this person's actual physiology, like BMI, age, put other health conditions and if there was a way to be like, okay, well, this embryo needs this. <laughs> How do I get that from the uterus? I mean, it would just, you know, it's matchmaking. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and I think this technology is going to go that way as well. You know, we can identify, and I think the laboratory has become very good at identifying which embryo will be a baby, right? Mm-hmm. Then it's, how do we get that embryo to implant? That's 50% of the puzzle. Because it's not all the embryo. That's right. It's not all the embryo. Um, (laughs) That's where I'm thinking. I'm like, once we have this beautiful embryo, using something to help us to make the little nursery inside the mom an even better place. And to that end, at one point, there were some embryologists that would look at and measure like what was secreted by the embryo in the Petri dish to get some sense for the health of the embryo. Is that a thing anymore? Does anybody do that? Would that be part of AI as well, potentially? There is. Yeah. I think a lot of these non-invasive, you know, and again, this is basically secretions of metabolites that are in the actual culture media. And again, you're not disturbing the embryo. All you're using is taking an aliquot of that culture media and taking a sample of the swimming pool in which the embryo is sitting in and identifying, you know, are these embryos you know, excreting certain metabolites or processing differently and trying to identify embryo health based on, you know, non-invasive approaches. So we are really staying close to this and trying to 
you know, identify what non-invasive technology coupled with each other. So you may be doing metabolomic profile in addition to artificial intelligence and maybe be able to replace a embryo biopsy and, and PGT all together, therefore making it extremely more affordable and approachable for all individuals, you know, seeking that sort of diagnosis. Yeah. And making it easy, a lot easier and hopefully more accurate. When are robot overlords going to take over? (laughs) Are we talking like two years, five years? We're not far away at all. I honestly think, you know, within the next uh, year or so, we're going to be seeing this in the majority of our laboratories, or at least those that are, you know, believing in the technology. Again, the beauty of this is, you know, we have nothing to lose. It's non-invasive. So if it doesn't work, then false hopes. Okay. Unfortunately, this technology didn't, but the data is very strong. And what gives me confidence in it is there's a lot, a lot of companies working this, particularly in this field, really trying to push it forward whereby selecting better embryos, better sperm, identifying better stimulation protocols for the patient, customizing a lot of what we do and catering it to that specific patient versus throwing spaghetti against the wall and see if it sticks. Um, (laughs) We definitely want to identify, you know, which embryo is going to make that pregnancy and make it fast. It's hard as a doctor because we all get the question, okay, for our specific circumstance, Mm -hmm. because, you know, we give people statistics and everything else, mainly based on age of what we expect chances of success to be. And then the next question is like, Well, in our specific circumstance, what's our statistics? And honestly, anybody who actually gives an answer to that situation (laughs) is just like making it up. I mean, I I mean, that's the that's the truth, because there's no way for us to do that at this point. And so it would be nice to be able to say for the two of you, I really think you have this chance. And IVF is a big investment for people. And, And, you know, a lot of times they have enough to make one big hurrah towards what they want and to be able to figure out, am I actually in that 80% or am I actually in that 5% and maybe I want to put my resources towards something else or maybe I want to play for that 5% and some people are going to still want to do that and that's completely fine with the right counseling. But for those who might choose another path and they have only so much resources, it would be great to be able to provide that type of information to our patients. Because usually our reply is, well, I don't have a crystal ball, but maybe my in the future I can say, but I have a really big computer that can analyze a lot of data <laughs> and give you a number. <laughs> That's right. I think we're seeing a lot more of that. There's a lot of power in data, especially good data. That's awesome. Well, Tex, do you have any last things you'd like to let our audience know about kind of the future and AI and your hopes and dreams for all of it? Yeah, you know, I'm just I'm proud to say that as a company, Ovation Fertility, and we're really focusing on the technology. That's what I do. That's my job description is really staying on top of the innovation and what's coming down the pipeline. Um, We've got multiple collaborations, you know, specific to this field and to this area of artificial intelligence, as well as some, you know, more um, automation of, of some of the procedures, whereby again removing some of those variables and removing that subjectivity to provide a more objective um, assessment of gametes and embryos, and just you know continue to create happy families. And it's obviously a passion. I was an embryologist, so work the bench, and obviously know you know uh, been in the trenches of it all. So. Um, It's great to sort of see where this is evolving. And I think we're hopefully, you know, making great strides to perfect the work we do in the laboratory and help us better identify good embryos and good sperm and good eggs. That was so informative. That was a great conversation. Thank you so much, Tex, for joining us today. 
Absolutely. To our audience, thanks for listening and be sure to tune in next week for more. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. We're also on Instagram and Facebook. So please hop on by and leave us a like or follow and say hello. You can also visit us on fertility.uncensored.com to submit questions. All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously for the Ask the Doc segment, or even leave us an episode idea. Don't hold back. We'd really love to hear from you. As always, this podcast is intended for entertainment and is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. And all right, everyone, we'll talk to you soon. See you next week. Bye. 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 Bye.